Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. The topic for tonight's show is from zero to 10,000 plus words, writing a winning family history. And I am so happy that my guest tonight, Leslie Anderson, is an award-winning writer. She is a reference librarian for the Special Collections Branch of the Alexandria Library in Alexandria, Virginia. Now, Leslie will discuss how to apply the classic strategy of information gathering to your research so that you can write a robust family history. She will explain how customized timelines resource guides, and locality guides can help you with your writing. So let me give a warm welcome to Leslie Anderson to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Leslie. Hi, Bernice. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, Leslie, I am so happy that you are here tonight because you're going to talk about something that I think we all think about doing, and that's writing a family history. But more importantly, you're going to also help us understand how to write a winning family history. So let's start at your beginning. When did you begin to get involved in genealogical research. And Leslie, please talk up a little so that everyone can hear you. Okay, thank you. I think, like most people, especially the women in the family, um, we grow up as the culture keepers. Um, The daughters spend time with the mothers, the aunts, the grandmothers, We hear the stories, we hear the gossip, we overhear the secrets, and at a certain point, um, it becomes a part of you. It's a part of of who you are. 
I didn't start doing genealogy methodically and systematically until I started working at the Special Collections Branch. I've had my degree in library science for a while, and it was during the time I was helping our users research their family stories and learning how to do it correctly that I thought to myself, I can do this. I want to look at my own family. Okay, and so, of course, once you started looking at your own family, what were you able to uncover? Well, <laughs> I was able to document some things I knew and find out some things I had no idea had occurred in my family. Um, I had made some assumptions about my family history, and some of those were um, confirmed, and some of them were completely blown out of the water. But with this article about my ancestor, Tabitha, it started with a simple question. I okay. Was a, I was in a conversation with my mother. I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, and so did my mom. I grew up with my mom's people, and we were talking. I'd been working at um, Special Collections Branch for a little while then, and I asked my mother where her grandfather was born. I knew her father. I had grown up with him in my life, although he lived in New York. <coughs> Excuse me. But I didn't know anything about his father. So I said to my mom, I said, Ma, where was your grandfather from? And she looked at me, and she said, I don't know. And she remembered as a teenager going to his funeral at the church in Norfolk. She grew up with his wife, her grandmother, but she didn't know details about his early life. So the first thing I did was to request a death certificate for this man, Shedrick Smith, who according to family tradition was the last black blacksmith in my hometown. When I received the certificate a few weeks later, it showed me that his father's name was R. Smith, that his mother's maiden name was T. George, and that this blacksmith, Shedrick Smith, had been born in Boyden, Virginia. Well, I, I grew up in Virginia. I, I spent my, my life in Virginia. I had no idea where Boyden, Virginia was. So the next thing I did was to go to the map. And then from there, I went to the basic documents, beginning with the census schedules, and it grew from there. Okay, which is kind of the, the process that you would think others might go into, right? They well, one ask the question. <laughs> one, one would hope. That's right. One would hope. And so tell us, how long did it take you to get your question answered to your satisfaction? Oh, man. Well, that death certificate gave me the basic. That, base, that death certificate gave me direct evidence that I was seeking to corroborate with other sources. Mm -hmm. um, I had to get to know that locale. Um, I'd grown up in Norfolk. I was familiar with that area. I knew nothing about Mecklenburg County. And so while I am doing the research on the family, I also wanted to educate myself about that community, about that, that time, um, really, quite literally, about that space, what was going on there, not just in, 
in terms of historic events, but also political events. How were the people living? Um, who was in that community? Um, this man, the blacksmith, was born in 1877. That puts us in the period just after the Civil War. And so it was critical that I examined those related documents, and I suspected, and it was confirmed, that that family had been enslaved. Now, when I started writing it, um, I was keeping files. I was keeping photocopies. I was beginning to keep scanned images. I had binders. I had folders. But it wasn't until I took a writing class at Sanford University, the Institute of Genealogy and Historical Research, that I began to put it together. That class was taught by Dr. Thomas Jones. And as I explored what was required of, of journal writing, of, of being published in a scholarly journal, I made a determination that, <clears throat> excuse me, I was going to tell this story and I was going to win. And that's okay. where the writing started. Oh, okay. So that's where you got the idea. Okay. Well, we certainly want to hear what it takes to write a winning a winning family history. And before we can even get to the winning part, let's just talk about the writing part. And are there any barriers that you have encountered or have had an opportunity to discuss barriers with other people that prevent them from writing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's... um. I think whether you are a professional writer, I mean, whether you're a paid to produce writing on a, on a consistent basis or whether you're an amateur writing, you start out with a blank page. Um, people have different styles. I personally, I still start longhand. I'll have a legal mm -hmm. pad and a ballpoint pen. So I'll write, I'll write, I'll write, I'll brain dump. But I think the obstacles, the ones that we share are our time. I think that's the biggest one. I work full-time. I work 40 hours a week. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. I commute two to three hours a day, depending on traffic. I have other interests and commitments and obligations. I have my family. I have my friends. I have my faith activities. And so there's also that concern about, well, when do I get it in? You know, do I get up at 4 in the morning? Do I write it when I, it's late at night? Um, but I think the more important thing is to begin, is to begin. And so then the question becomes, well, where do I begin? When do I have enough material? And that can be an obstacle too. Um, but I think the biggest one for me, and, and I would guess your listeners um, have experienced this as well, the biggest one for me was can I tell the story? Can I, can I tell the story in a way that is respectful of these people I've never met um, who, who lived in a different time and had a different experience than I did? Can I tell their story? And especially the story of enslaved people, I did not want them to be two-dimensional. It was very important to me to communicate their humanity, that they were not victims, they were not heroes. They were human beings with the emotions and fears and anxieties and dreams that we have right now in the 21st century. 
And so as you speak of, well, can I tell a respectful story, how do you determine, well, what voice do you use in telling that story? Is it their voice? Is it your voice as the writer looking around and assessing the whole situation and you're telling kind of your journey? Uh, just help us understand when you start writing a story, do you have to give some thought to the voice? Yeah, that was a big problem. Well, problem, opportunity, challenge, it, it was all of that. <laughs> it was all of that because what I started to, I think one of the things, too, when you're committed, when you have committed yourself to a project like this, you want it to be perfect, and there's a risk of editing yourself, over-editing yourself as you go along so that the project never seems to get finished. So what I did was, um, and, yeah, I would say this is a courageous thing. This is what you have to do is just get something on paper, you know, get something on paper and just run with it. My original revisions um, show lots of e ellipses, lots of scratch-throughs, lots of fragments of sentences, lots of notes to myself in brackets, lots of notes to myself in parens, and then I'd go back and use different color highlights. To It, it was crazy. It, it was crazy, but it was also a very satisfying experience, very satisfying. People ask me, if I enjoy writing, and I would have to say, well, yeah, I enjoy having written. <laughs> I enjoy oh, okay. There's, there's nothing like seeing it there on the page, and it was a struggle. Um, mm -hmm. I started the writing um, around the time I was in Tom's class in Birmingham, and I continued with it for several years until I was able to submit it in, de in December 2013, I made the deadline then, and I stopped counting after 47 revisions. I, I just stopped counting. And so I did not begin it at the beginning. I just wrote sketches about people. I wrote about what was going on with the enslaved people. I wrote sketches about what was going on with um, freed people. I, I wrote about the slaveholders. And so then I was able to think about what's the narrative? How do I want to put this together? And so the writing right. really is in the rewriting. So much of is in the rewriting. Well, you know, there's a question coming out of the chat, uh, and the, the question is, did you handwrite the entire article before <laughs> typing? It feels and, like And 47 <laughs> revisions. I have to tell you, it sounds like to me you're writing and editing and writing and editing a lot. Uh -huh. Yes, I was. And I was. And sometimes these, uh, well, let me let me ask this, the first question first. Long hand all the way through, no. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, but but in when I was when I would begin a portion of it, and, and none of this is hard and fast. You know, this is what was working for me at this time in my life when I was writing this. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to share my experience on that, and, and I hope that people will take from it what they can use and find what works for them. So from the beginning, when I started writing it, yeah, it was longhand. 
um, because that's I like the feel of the pen across the paper. And so I'll write on a legal pad, double space. Now, that might not work for someone else. You know, that just might not work. And then after I had a few pages, then I typed the pages. And then I'd print them and look at them. And I was numbering the revisions as I was going through so that I could keep track. And some of the things that I ended up with in the final version were things that I had held on to from the very first. And some of it I left on the editing floor. And so at different points in the process, my overriding goal was to tell the best possible story. And within okay. the guidelines of the um, the contest requirements. Okay. Now, there's a question that's coming out of the chat room, but I do have to ask you this before I get to this question. Did uh-huh. you Did you come up with an outline of where you what you wanted to have in this story, or did you just start writing? Mm. Mm. That's a fair question. Did I have an outline? Well, I I knew that. Uh, let let me say this: there is a structure. There is a structure to um, the, the the article um, of articles that are submitted. Um, you begin with the background. You produce what's called the um, summary, and then you explore each generation and those individuals in those generations that you have, and the generations that you have information on as best you can. Um, in in my journey, I was able to tell the story of four generations, and it gets sticky in the in the later generations because in some cases the there are living people. And that's what happened in, in my family. My uncle has passed away, but my mother is still with us. So I'm real, you know, I, I wanted to, to tell the story and um, and tell it accurately, um, tell it accurately, and, of course, document it, document that oral history, document those family stories. Okay, so what you are uh Describing, however, it sounds like some guidelines because uh-huh. you you've kind of laid out some information to us, and so I want you to go back and then say that again. What the guidelines were that you were following, and I, I think this is the family history writing contest. Is that the the guidelines you're citing? That's right. It be uh, with the National Genealogical Society. That's correct. The okay. um, specifics are found at a link on the website for NGS. And I had studied these guidelines before I started writing. And then I wrote. And, and then I wrote. And I would refer to the guidelines from time to time. But I did not let the guidelines restrict my writing. Um, one of okay. the things my dad taught me, it's like if you're going to play on somebody else's playground, you have to follow their rules. And so I could have written and written and written and turned that in, but it would not have met the um, the requirements. For example, um, the manuscript length between 4,000 and 10,000 words, three to four generations, 10, 12-point type with one-inch margins, the numbering system to follow the um, the, the protocol, of the quarterly, the NGS quarterly, 
And so there are specific things there, and, and, and it's quite strict. It's quite strict, for example, the word count. And this is a, um, it's a blind submission. And that was one of the things that really appealed to me about this because with a blind submission, in this case, the work goes in, um, the title of the article, the name, the word count, a couple other particulars on the cover sheet. But the author's name does not appear anywhere else on the manuscript that will be judged. So in essence, the manuscript is logged in, copies are made, they go to the judges, and so the judges do not know who has written the piece. So there's, there can be no bias, oh, so-and-so wrote this, so we can give this special attention, or so-and-so wrote this, so we can cut them a break. It's the work. It is the work. Okay, it is the work. And so you're following very specific uh, guidelines, and so there's a question that's being asked, however, out of okay. the chat. Once of a winning family history, what does competition mean regarding family history, and does winning make other histories losers or somehow less? So which question are we going to answer? <laughs> Whichever <laughs> which one, one you... Which one am, am I picking? Okay. You can pick. There, all right. Um, winning. We have... How do I say? People can play a card game and win. There's no discussion about that. Either you win or you lose. Okay? You run a, a race. You win or lose. You You, you apply for a position at work. Either you get it or you don't. There's a win and a lose. There's nothing inherently wrong with winning or losing. Um, at a certain point, someone said to me, um, someone I had checked in with from time to time who inquired about how I was doing on my project, and, and I said to this person, he, he said to me, the important thing is to finish. And I said to him, that is important, but I want to win. And so in terms of winning, I had to define for myself, what, what is winning? What, what does that mean for Leslie Anderson? It can mean something different for Bernice Bennett. It can mean something different for the person who, who's waiting to ask a question. It's the, the person. It, it's how do you define winning? For me, it was critical. It was important to me. Would I have been disappointed had this article not won this year? Yeah, I would have been disappointed. I would have been disappointed, but it wouldn't have been the end. It would not have. So in, in that respect, it, it's a very personal issue. I can't, you know, this was what was winning for me, you know. And, yeah, when someone wins, then someone loses. Someone doesn't get, you know, the gold ring. You know, someone doesn't get um, whatever is, a, you know, the, quote, prize. But so it is a courageous thing to risk, to risk losing. So, yeah, it, it's a tremendous growth opportunity. And so mm -hmm. if a person feels, well, if I, if I don't win, then what was the point? Well, then maybe they shouldn't compete. And, and that might sound harsh, but it, it's, it's an opportunity 
to really look at what's important to you and how how can you make that happen. And sometimes things happen. Right. But it also sounds like to me, just listening to you, that it was a a motivating uh, tool to get you going, that your goal was to write your story and to win was the validation of your research Um, and your writing skills. I I don't know that I I would say validation. Um, It has been said that... um, Bad writing can be fixed, but bad research cannot be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I think so. So the challenge the challenge is, is to do both well. Uh, to to do both well. So how do you learn to do it well? You know how do you learn to do it well? Well, you look at anything else you want to study and be, and become good at. You know whether it's a sport. And I'm just so pre Title Nine. It's not funny. But if it's a sport or a hobby, it's you want to look, you want to study the behavior, the actions of people who have mastered it. So to that mm-hmm. end, I read repeatedly um, articles in the NGS publication, in the quarterly, as it's known. Um, I applied myself. I asked questions. Um, I continued to sharpen my writing. I, I listened. I, I read people whose writing appealed to me. I, I read mm-hmm. articles that I could um, connect with. It can the the, the articles and, and I read a variety. I, I read some in, in the trade. I read some more um, colloquial articles, some more casually written um, in, in the popular press. And but coming from the perspective of a librarian, um, the the importance of, of peer-reviewed journals f- for researchers it, it's just so important because what it means is that those articles in peer-reviewed journals are typically held to a much higher standard than in the general press, than say newspapers or general magazines. The documentation is questioned by people who know something, sometimes a lot, about what you know, the documentation, the analysis, the methodology. So it wasn't just the research and the writing. It's like all those elements, all those elements are an opportunity to write an even better story. So whether a person chooses to um, to publish, to submit a, a manuscript to a scholarly journal, I would encourage I would encourage people strongly to do that. I, I really do. D- don't count yourself out, and know that if you submit your manuscript to a journal, that you you may get responses or a critique that might make you uncomfortable, um, will challenge beliefs you have held, and so it, it's very important to be prepared and and to um, you know detach the ego. Right. What you're saying is that you have to have a thick skin. Well, I have two comments coming out of the chat. One uh, comment is a congratulatory uh, comment from uh, Mac Mac, uh, Yule, and he said, we are very proud of your accomplishment. We also have a question, and it's in reference to your comment about bad research 
why can't it be corrected? Not clear on the phrase or the statement. Ah, okay. I'm glad the person asked that. Bad research. Bad research means, and I'm, I'm defining this. This is what I heard in a classroom setting. Bad research, good writing, uh, bad writing. Bad research means uncooperated, unchallenged, okay? I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. The, the family story was that um, Shedrick Smith was the last African-American blacksmith in my hometown. So in the same conversation with my mom, I said, Ma, how do you know that? And she, bless her heart, she says, well, because he was. <laughs> you know, that's what she was told. And so as a researcher, I'm, I want to find out, was he in fact the last African-American blacksmith in, in Norfolk. So how did I do that? Well, I, in that case, I looked at city directories from the year he died, 1939, to several years out. Well, as it turned out, there were other black blacksmiths in Norfolk. They petered out. They, there, were, there were no other entries in the city directories after the early 1940s. Later in my research, I found an article in the Journal and Guide. The Norfolk Journal and Guide is the African-American newspaper of record in Hampton Roads and also in the eastern part of North Carolina. And there was an interview. There was an interview with Shedrick Smith, and he, he is, he's described, his physique is described, his, his, the way he acquired his business, his skills. Um, he makes some quotes um, about his occupation, he says the the automobile never fully replaced the horse. I mean, this was in 1937, 1938 that he's making this statement. But the reporter noted in the article that Smith is the last one of his race who still shoes horses. And so in that family tradition, he was the last black blacksmith in Norfolk Oh, he was the last one who shooed horses because other blacksmiths were expanding um, the products and services. And so it's, it's stopping at the first answer. I, I would say bad research is stopping at the first answer. Okay, how about that? Because, and you want to pursue, okay, this is an answer, but is there something else that confirms this or disputes it? So I hope right. that's helpful. I hope that's helpful. Right. So bad so bad research can be corrected. It can be corrected. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Well we're going to take a quick break and come back on and continue to discuss writing a winning uh article. And we're going to talk about the role of the editor. So quick break and we'll be right back. Okie dokie.
Well, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond, Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, you have been listening to Leslie Anderson. Share with us some of the guidelines. I mean, what makes a winning story? And, Leslie, it looks like we have a guest calling in with a question. So, area code 301, do you have a question or comment? I have a question. Uh, Leslie, you mentioned in the article that Tabitha had 14 children, and you've spoken about four generations of the family that you wrote about. As I look around my office, I see binders, folders, stacks of paper. And my question is, how do you organize all the information that you have obtained during your research before you even start writing? Do you have any suggestions? Thank you for asking that. Um, that idea of organizing for writing, I'll throw that out the window. Um, organizing, it, my, my organization constantly evolved through this project, and if you wait until you're perfectly organized, not that you might necessarily do that, but anyone who might wait until they're completely organized, um, it will never get written. And, and that, that's a part of the struggle, too, is, is that um, there are some basics. Um, it helps to have an inventory of, okay, I've got, uh, it can be as complete a list or a spreadsheet for your basics. If you want to organize it by geography, I had my Norfolk material on one side of the room. I had my New Jersey material sometimes on the floor in the corner of another room. I had the New York research somewhere else. That's how my brain works. There, I think it's partly how I'm wired and partly my training that I, I can keep track generally of, of groups of information, batches of information, and then once I get to that batch, I can find, I can find what I'm looking for. Um, the hardest thing for me once I started writing was keeping track of of the, the revisions and just um, numbering them. And, yes, I would print them out and keep them in a binder because after a certain point, I can read several pages online, but then when it gets longer, I, I need the printed page. I need the printed page. So um, I, I hope that's helpful. I hope that helps. So you – Yes, yeah, so you were editing as you were writing, and you organized, from what I heard you say, you organized, but then you didn't organize, but then you had your stuff in different places so you knew where to get what you needed when you needed it. <laughs> That's just the nature of it. You know, I, I gave up having a desk. You know, you get a laptop, you're in your kitchen, or you're in your living room, or you go to the library. But, yeah, I did have a designated space, and I did have binders. I had, um, I had other articles. I had um, 
file folders when I printed out chancery cases, not printed out, when I had photocopied a number of chancery cases at the Library of Virginia. Um, my census items I had in a binder. I had that arranged by surname. I had the information about the slave owners in different places. Now, this might sound hopeless and crazy and overwhelming. The process is messy. I mean, it, it is a messy process. And um, I, I think anyone who tells you otherwise has a different experience. But I, I, I think many of us are just messy with it. Um, and, and, and we want it to be orderly. You know, we, we want it to be organized and clean. And, and it just isn't. It wasn't for me for you. However, there's a point at which you feel comfortable enough that it's time for your document to go to the next level. And yes. that's where the editing comes in. So talk yes. to us about the role of the editor. And I know people love their words. They love their words, but there comes a point in time where you have to kind of give it up to somebody else to to help you. So talk about the role of the editor. The editor. I, in an ideal, in an earlier lifetime, I worked for a national magazine, and um, I was on the research staff, and I got to know the editors. Um, so I'm not afraid of editors, and editors have different styles. Some of them say, in that case, if the contract said 1,500 words, they wanted 1,500 words. If the contract said 1,500 words and the writer came in with 1,600 words, depending on the editor and that writer, they would hammer that out. And so I've never been afraid of editors. Uh, my position is that an editor, an editor's responsibility is to help the writer. Um, I've always learned from editors. I've always, I have learned from editors to be a better writer. And I think the best editor doesn't take over the piece but allows the writer's words, the writer's story to come through. And it, it's um, it's not a hierarchical relationship. It might look like it and it might feel like it. But it was a real pleasure for me to work with the editors at the queue, at the quarterly. It was a very much a give and take. We did occasionally have differences about how something might be phrased. And sometimes I was persuaded to um, change something, maybe a sentence or two, and it went the other way as well. And so it was a very collegial experience, very collegial. Well, there's a comment coming out of the chat, and this is from Mac, and he's saying, uh, during my recent writing class at Howard University with Will Haygood, former Washington Post author who wrote the source material for the butler, uh -huh. he said that every writer needs an editor, no exceptions. And so what about those writers who feel they can have a cousin or an English teacher look at their work and, and check it for grammar, but they're not editors? What would you say? Who should edit a piece of material? 
first someone you trust and someone you respect. Um, I, I, I think that's the the most important thing, and that person can be hard to find. Um, that it, it's so important. Um, writing is so personal. It, it's an expression of what's important to you, of, of what matters to you. And it, it's when you give your manuscript over to an editor or to a friend to look at, there's a part of you that goes, it's part of it, don't hurt me, don't hurt my feelings, tell me the truth, but be gentle with it. And um, so I, I think the question becomes, how do you find an editor that you can work with? I think, like this, this writing course at Howard University, that's an opportunity in any writing course, you know, whether it's a for free writing course um, or writer's group um, meeting at your public library or at a writer's center in your community. That's an opportunity to get to know people and to, and to negotiate um, and exchange. I'm, I'm happy to look at your work. What do you want me to look for? Are you asking me to look for structure? Are you asking me to look at inconsistencies? What is it you want me to read for? And so I think that's where it has to start. Most of us can't go out and hire somebody, pay an editor um, to look at our work. Most of us can't do that. Um, and so I think it comes from the, that individual interaction to build on those relationships to build on those relationships that we develop um, in a community of writers. Right. And so you submitted your article to the National Genealogy Society. So what were the editors of NGS specifically looking for? Oh, man. The... um are we talking about the entry, or are we looking? Are we talking about the once the article was edited for publication? Once the article has been submitted and uh -huh. for publication, okay. what were they looking for? Okay, all right. I, I'll answer the, that question the best I can. Um, I found out. I was notified that I had won um, the contest. I was presenting um, at the Fairfax Genealogical Society Spring Conference um, when a colleague and friend came in to talk to me and during the break, and he asked, Leslie, did you get my email? And I said, what email? And he said, the email about your article. And I said, what article? And he leaned over and he said, Leslie, your article won the Family History Writing Contest. And it was like publisher's clearinghouse. I grabbed him. I started screaming. I was jumping up and down, and he was thrilled. And he said to me that the editorial staff would be in touch with me, that I would be expecting a letter. I would get a letter in the mail, and then the editorial staff would be in touch with me. And so um, that's what happened. The editorial staff got in touch with me. They're taking a look at, at my manuscript, and um, I got a set of queries. I think it was maybe 12 pages long. 
Um, and the queries were prim- primarily related to the footnotes. Um, we've got the date, we've got the page, we've got the name of the article and the name of the newspaper. Can you get a column number for us? Or we've got the name of an individual here. Was her name Mary Jane Lomax or was her name Mary Lomax? Um, And so in my case, a lot of the editorial queries were related not to the writing, not to the substance so much, but to the to the, the, some technical aspects having to do with footnotes. And um, we were working against a deadline. This began to occur in late spring of, let's see, the banquet was in 2014. This began to occur in late spring of 2014. And typically the article, the, the announcement is made at the, at the May banquet. In this case it was in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and the article is published in December of that year um, due to a, a, a host of um, events. Uh, we decided to hold the article until March 2015. Um, I mean, hell, I've been writing it for several years at that point, and so waiting another quarter, um, I, I was happy to do that. Um, but but the back and the forth, I was in touch with um, the lead editor in, in this in this case was Tom Jones. We were in touch by email. Uh, we were in touch by phone. Um, I set up a couple phone appointments so I could get clarity on what was being asked of me. Um, if if um, for folks who've read the article, they'll notice things like live um, well, and and one of the ethical guidelines in our field is not to publish information about living people without their permission. Well, in, in, in drilling down into the generations, I had identified some individuals who I believed who might have been, who might have been dead, but I didn't know if they were dead or not. Um, I had been able to identify them in the original submission, um, and I had information about them. It was pulled largely from census, uh, the 1940, 1930 census schedules, but also some articles about the family and some Bible entries. But I could not confirm that those folks were deceased. And so when the article was published, I, I think the phrasing is um, information withheld. Um, on a possibly living individual. I, I think that's how it's phrased. And so um, there were points like that that we, we discussed. Um, right. there, were, there were issues like de facto and, and de jour and, you know, do we italicize this or not? What, what's the style guide for the quarterly, that type of thing? Okay. Now, one of the, the, the things that I think is, is really important for people to understand is that you had 10,000-plus words uh-huh. and 200 citations. And you, as you said, you had 12 pages of editorial queries related to the footnotes, just yeah, the footnotes. primarily the footnotes, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah well, when, when the piece went in, it was limited to 10,000 words. And, and, it, and it says in the guidelines, it, it said at the time, that if the word count was over, the piece would be disqualified. 
And so that brings us back to what we learn in kindergarten. Follow the directions. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's follow the directions. It, it would have been a shame. You know, I would have missed a, a tremendous opportunity if I hadn't followed the directions. So, yes, mm-hmm. the submitted piece did, I think the submitted piece had 9,989 words in it. Um, and I think when I submitted it, I had 286 footnotes. And some of those footnotes had um, two, sometimes three sources in them. Um, and one of the things I learned by working with, with Tom and Melindy was to, to write more tightly, um, to, to write more tightly without having it sound stilted. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about voice earlier. I went through, when I was doing these 47-plus revisions, when I first started writing it, it was very technical. It was very analytical. You know, it sounded dry to me, but it got the facts, and that's where I was when I started it. And then when I started writing about one of the generations, because I knew the people in that generation, I was able to, to be more conversational. Well, that wasn't going to work. And so as I, but I keep, I kept writing those sections. And then when I started putting the pieces together, knitting it together, then boom, it, it, it came from, it came from deep inside how I wanted it to sound. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. achieved So it started flowing. Right. Well, you know, even, even you find people when they're writing a book, they may start off very genealogy, very technical, and then they have to, as you you said, you wanted to tell a respectful story, but you also wanted to capture the essence of the family and the community and what was going on. And so how do you balance that and have those 200 citations the way they're supposed to be written? <laughs> well, you know, I, I have a in genealogy, the way she does it is different than, than what I, I did. She writes. She writes, she writes, she writes. And Who's then she? she a, a friend of mine, a colleague. Oh, and, okay. Um, who's a professional genealogist. And um, then she she keeps track of her sources, of course. She, she's kept track of them. And then she drops them in to the appropriate place. Um, at one point when I was doing my revisions, and actually um, up until the very end, I would insert the footnote, and I might write a note to myself. Um, I would not. I might not stop and do the citation according to Elizabeth Schoen Mills' evidence explained. I would write a placeholder for myself. Um, so I would insert a footnote where I knew one was supposed to go or probably would go, and I, I would write a note to myself, or I would copy and paste from where I had used that footnote before. Um, or I would write, I know it's in that corner somewhere, and then I I would just keep going. I'd keep going. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the footnotes are there. Yes. The footnotes are there. Yes. In the end, the footnotes are there. Right, right. So, I mean, everybody has their own style of how they kind of tell that story and how they document the sources that help them with the story. And uh, so at least you, you have your placeholders. You know you knew exactly where you wanted to put your uh, your footnotes. Uh-huh. 
So would you do it again? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I was consumed by this. I, I was driven. Um, I, I'd never been so committed to a project in my life. Um, and, and I mean, which and I've undertaken, and I'm real proud of some some other accomplishments, particularly. Um, I, and now I'm in the in the professional realm. I, I'm thinking of, um, but it it was hard. I mean, a lot of things happened. Um, I, I started writing this um, after Sanford, the Sanford University experience. I was so it was six, seven, what eight years. Um, a lot of things happened. Um, bought and sold a house. Um, one Christmas, I, I was so focused. I, I was staying up for three and four months, getting three and four hours of sleep. Um, I ended up in the ER. I thought I'd had a stroke, but it was exhaustion. You know, there, oh, there was wow. that Christmas. That was always my big push. You know, I'd start my mm-hmm, big push mm-hmm. on the piece in October. I gave IOUs at Christmas time to my family because I hadn't been Christmas shopping. Um, wow. My best friend died during this period, mm-hmm. um, and it was it was more than a challenge. And every time I didn't make the deadline that I thought I was going to make, I would always find another piece, or I would always learn something um, that I could find useful, and that that enhanced the piece. Right. So you're saying that, you know, in spite of all of the potential obstacles that would have derailed your writing, you mm-hmm. continue you continue forward. Now, you said you didn't make make the deadline sometimes. Uh-huh. Did you put yourself on a on a planning timetable, a writing timetable? Yeah, yeah, I did. And um Sometimes they worked for me, and sometimes they didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes they just didn't. Um, it's been said too much that life um, gets in the way. What, what, what I my takeaway from this, and, and I hope that other people um, can get a uh, get a sense of this, is the importance of not giving up. I mean, I wanted this. I wanted this story told. It was, I, it was all I thought about. It was what I thought about for, for a long time, and and when it was published, it, there was a little bit of, well, now what do I do, you know? Yes. Um, and and but and, and that that's a whole different issue because you know I'm, I'm working on some other projects now, but but I I think. One of the important things is to be honest with yourself. I mean, it's a huge opportunity for self-reflection, you know, and it doesn't all come at one time. There are these little burbles of awareness, you know, about what people experienced, the things we whine about and complain about. You know, your your ancestors don't get points for having been celebrities or having been free or enslaved. You're, you're, you don't get points for whether your ancestors were slave owners or not slave owners. They were who they were. You know, it's um, the, the, the important thing is what are we doing with it right now? And as genealogists, it, it is our responsibility. It, it is our responsibility to do this, to do this work right. and to do it in the best possible way. 
Right, and to tell the story. Tell, tell the, the story. story. Tell the story. And so thank you so much for coming on tonight to, to share with us the, the process that you went through, which sounds like a very arduous process. But in the end, you you became a winner because you had a winning family history. So let's we'll look at the guidelines and follow in your footsteps so that we could see even more family history stories uh, in journals, in peer-reviewed journals, and that they will also come on the show and share with us uh, their experience, just like you have shared with us tonight. So thank you so much. Thank you so, so very much. Well, I just want to thank everyone for, for listening to the show, for hanging in there with us tonight. And please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond, and then please tell your story. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and Afrogenius Facebook pages. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research, LLC. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, Leslie. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you.